Tonight, we are actually going to complete an entire chapter of chapter 15. <laughs> I believe yeah. it when I see it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, as we discussed way back in chapter 11, verse 19, which I'm sure you remember, uh, we said that chapter 15 takes place, it seems, at the seventh trumpet. And it is going to be blown when the saints are marching, in. marching into heaven. Yeah. And so we begin here in chapter 15, verse 1. It says this. Then I saw another angel, or another sign rather, in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. We're in heaven because, as we've said, man is not appointed to wrath. His, his chosen, his, his saints, will not go through the wrath of God. And when we see these bold judgments, this is the true wrath of God. Prior to this, we've seen God's wrath being poured out here and there on portions. But the entire world is now about to be destroyed. Whereas we saw in trumpet judgments that a third of the earth was burned, a third of the sea. Now we're going to see the entire earth is going to be burned. The entire sea, the entire fresh water, the entire heavens, all of it is about to come to an end. The very thing that Abraham and all the, the people that have gone before us have been waiting for ultimately. Yes, they've been waiting for the Messiah, but they wanted him to come the second time where they will reign with him, where they will be with him on a day-to-day -day basis in, in the flesh. And that is about to happen here. And so this is a great and marvelous time. You might look at this and say, well, how is that great and marvelous? This is terrible and doom. And No, this is great and marvelous because this is the culmination of what we have all been waiting for. Now, we're not going to actually see these bowls be poured out until chapter 16, but this is the announcement. This is what's going on. I think this is a very quick time period of what we're seeing here in chapter 15. So it's preparation and praise time, you might say. Seven times over, the Bible says that our sins would be uh, paid for, in a sense. Leviticus 26, 21 said, If you remain hostile toward me and refuse to listen to me, I will multiply your affliction seven times over as your sins deserve. I don't know if that's what, why there are seven bowls and all of this, but I do know that God's wrath, seven being a symbolic of completeness, we're going to see the complete and utter destruction of sin, of death, of the devil, of everything that is evil. And one of these angels is going to later show John the church or the bride of the Lamb being in heaven when we get to chapters 21 and 22. And so, while chapter 15 is kind of just this, you know, introduction of preparation and praise, 16, 17, and 18 is just, we're, we're seeing wrath being poured out. 19, we're going to see the wedding banquet of the Lamb. 
20, we get to see us reigning with him. 21 and 22, we see the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven. It's over. It is, it's eternity. And so we're kind of on the, the downward slope here in the book of Revelation. Verse 2 says, And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. Those who have the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name standing on the sea of glass having harps of God. And so this is a good thing. This is exactly how the throne of God was described earlier in chapter 4, verse 6. So we see the throne of God. Now we've seen the elders, we've seen some uh, of the saints before him, but now we're seeing that those who have victory over the Antichrist, the false prophet, the, the devil... They're standing on the sea, having harps of God. Those who have come out of the tribulation, those who have, have stood firm and have not bought into the cares of this world, who have bought into his kingdom, who, who have been distracted and decided to build a kingdom here, those who have not been distracted, they're the ones that are standing here before the Lord. And there are four things that they're going to have victory over here. The beast, his image, his mark, and the number of his name. And I was trying to figure and dissect the difference between all of these. And I don't know if I really was very successful outside of the beast is, is the very person of the devil. His image is just an idol that reflects who he is. His mark is the works that he does and those who, who, who buy into the lie of who he is and what it stands for. And that number of his name is just that absolute sh falling short of the glory of God, the 666. And just uh, an ownership that has been placed on you. Christ has put his seal on you, but the devil puts his seal on those who follow him. And so it's the whole package of, of not just the person, but what he stands for. What he owns. Who you submit to. All of it. We read in Ezekiel chapter 1. Verses 25 through 28 here. Then there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads as they stood with lowered wings. Talking about the cherubim here. Just showing you the same type of imagery as being seen in Ezekiel. This isn't new. It says, Above the expanse over the heads was what looked like a throne of sapphire, which is like that sea of glass. It's sometimes, uh, sometimes said a sea of glass, sometimes the sapphire, clear as the sky itself. High above the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire. So now you understand what this sea of glass mingled with fire is. This is the presence of God. And that from there down, his waist down, he looked like fire and brilliant light surrounded him like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord 
When I saw it, I fell face down and I heard the voice of one speaking. Notice you've got God and then you've got the likeness of God all around him. The glory of it that you, you, you set your mind upon. You gaze upon. I think that's what it is, the difference between the beast and his image. That his image is what you long after. You gaze upon it. You, you have a longing for what the world has to offer you versus a longing for God and his glory. Well, there is a wash basin in the temple. If you remember the tabernacle or the temple, there is the outer court. And in that outer court, you had this big altar where the offerings were made. And right behind that was this big basin of water. It was called the water basin or sometimes even called the sea of glass. Remember, the tabernacle is a picture of heaven. And this sea of glass is in front of the holy place and then the most holy place. And the holy place and most holy place is where we had, you know, the, the word of God and the menorah, the flesh, the bread of life in the table of showbread, the altar of incense and prayer, and then the, the Ark of the Covenant, which was his very presence. And that sea of glass is right in front of it, that bronze basin. And so knowing that the Bible says this is a model, a picture of what heaven is, I think that that wash basin is a picture of this sea of glass that is before that throne. Interestingly, it's mixed with fire. We saw here in Ezekiel that God is coming with fire as his waist down, his feet glowing because he is coming to judge. And how he's going to judge is with his word, the word of truth, the sword that comes out of his mouth. That word is the sword. And now we're seeing that as the bold judgments are about to be poured out, we are seeing wrath of God, the fire that purifies. And he's going to use that word, that fire, to purify, to judge the hearts of people. And that is exactly what you're seeing here. When you went into the holy place and the most holy place, you washed on the sea of glass because it was the sea of glass that was a picture of the word of God, the, the Jews even saw it as that, that showed you were supposed to have a clean walk with God, that you're your feet and hands, how you serve him, how you walk with him, were to be washed and pure. And you didn't go into the holy place unless you had a pure, cleansed walk. And this is what we're seeing here. That God is that purifying water. And here we see those saints that have overcome, that are pure because of him. So, very important to see that imagery. Just like in the temple, the priests had harps and, and songs and music that were going on in the temple. And they would sing. We'll talk about that here in a moment. Here we are going to see that the saints are going to have harps 
and they're praising God. There's a reason that it's in the temple and it's here at the throne of God. Because basically what's on earth is a shadow of what's in heaven. So the earthly sea is a picture of the greater sea in heaven, the throne of God. And so what you're seeing here in Revelation 15 too is God on his throne and the saints before him as what was supposed to be pictured in the tabernacle. Even in the book of Exodus, Moses saw the exact same thing. It says that he saw the God of Israel under his feet with something like a pavement made of sapphire, clear as the sky itself. I'm amazed at how many times we read the book of Revelation and people look at this and they symbolize it all the way because, oh, well, that, that can't be real. So it just, this, you know, sea as clear as the sky itself, it's just a symbol of this. No, Moses, a historical book, saw the exact same thing. I'm telling you, that's what you're going to see in heaven. I'm sure it symbolizes things as well, but it is legitimate. You're going to see that. That's what Moses saw. In Revelation 21, when really this earth, the stuff that we know, will mean nothing anymore, it says the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. That is one big oyster. The great street of the city was of pure gold like transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The very streets we're going to walk on are like the foundation of God's throne, clear as the sky itself, but they're pure gold. 100% absolute pureness. I often say the astronauts, when they went to the moon, the... Yes, when they went to the moon, had a gold-plated visor, pure gold, and, and you could see through it. We cannot even begin to understand the pureness. I mean, even our purest of gold isn't as pure as what this is going to be. Pure because it's been refined by God in his word. Verse 3, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God. You had a bonus song because I asked Logan, I said, could we sing this? This song of Moses is sung every Sabbath evening in many Jewish households in remembrance of the salvation that God brought. There's a reason that they're not singing how Great Thou Art, or any other song, but a specific song mentioned in Scripture that was written and given at a time of deliverance when Israel crossed the Red Sea. They got on the other side and they began to sing the song of Moses, a song of deliverance. And that's why I asked him to, to play that or sing that tonight. Back in chapter 5, verse 8, we saw that there were 24 elders and the four living creatures that had fallen down before the throne of God and they were singing praises. Why? Because they had been delivered. Let me tell you, upon our deliverance, we're going to do the same. I don't know if that's the tune that it's going to be that we sang tonight, but I can tell you this, I think we're going to be singing the song of Moses. 
I think we should get to know the Song of Moses. The song they sing is this very song, these very words, and I know it's these words because it is in Scripture. It's in Exodus 15 or Deuteronomy 32. And so I think this song, anytime you see this song, it's portraying the joy and the praise of deliverance. In this case, the joy of praise and deliverance from the beast, his image, his mark, and the number of his name. As I was saying before, I could not imagine having to live 500 years, let alone 900 years, what that would be like. It would be so depressing because I long to be delivered from this world as it is. I said I also know that's wrong because right now the kingdom of God is here as well. To live like that is to live as if Satan has won. Satan has not won. He's not even close. He stands condemned even. And we should be living life that is victorious. We should be singing that song of Moses right now because, yes, the world, as much as there is evil in it, the gates of hell cannot prevail against Jesus Christ. We need to, to meditate on that and realize this isn't just for the future, it's for now as well. How did these people overcome the beast, his image, the mark, and the number of his name? By the word of their testimony and the blood of the Lamb. You see, it's that word of the testimony that's supposed to make us say, I don't care what Biden's doing. I've got Jesus. I don't care what Ukraine and Russia are doing. I've got Jesus. I don't care about the cancer that I have, I've got Jesus. We have victory, and we have it now. We just don't have all of what is promised to us yet, but what we have right now is great and marvelous. We need to remember that. Moses is the one that's mentioned here in Revelation. Not Abraham, not Noah, not Paul or Daniel, John the Baptist, who, you know, even he that's least in the kingdom of heaven isn't, you know, as great. None of them. Moses, why? Why him than any other faith hero? I think possibly because of his role that God ordained him to have, that he was one of the two witnesses, it seems, mentioned back in chapter 11. Plus the Exodus is a picture of Moses, as I'm going to show you next week, and we're going to dive into this more next week, but Moses is a Christ figure. And even the Jews see him as a picture of the Messiah that was to come. 
And so Moses is particularly the one that leads them in the exodus out of slavery, out of sin. Yeshua is the one that leads us out of sin, out of slavery. Moses was the lawgiver. Yeshua is the lawgiver under the new covenant. And we see all these connections. Like I said, next week that's going to become even more clear. But he was the one that led them into the promised land. Yeshua is the one that's leading us into the promised land. We act, I act for sure sometimes, as if the promised land is the only goal. And it's not. Every one of those Old Testament saints never got to see the result of the promise, but they had faith in the promise. That's no different than you and I. It's no different than our grandparents and our great-grandparents and our great-great-grandparents and our great-great-great-grandparents. They had the promise. Was it a failure? No, it was a success. Because Yeshua has led them into their promised land. So as long as we have breath, we need to live as if we have already had an exodus. That's what's so great about celebrating Passover and the Seder meal. Because guys, we have had an exodus. I like this part here in verse 4, fitting with what Logan had talked about here. It says, Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints, who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. Who shall not fear you? That's a rhetorical question. Everybody better fear God which I find interesting because in the church today, it's almost a merit for us to say that God is our friend and buddy so that you don't fear him. And yet this is our, these are the saints that are being talked about here. Who shall not fear God? All the saints that are around, they even fear God. But we're taught that this fear is a bad thing when in fact it's a good thing. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And go back and listen to Logan's message on fear. As we were talking a couple of weeks ago in our post-Bible study session, I was talking, we were talking about how sometimes Daniel Joseph's sermons, they'll, they'll leave you without really much of a gospel message. And Tara was saying how she really appreciated the, the last one on the seventh commandment because he gave you that hope. And I said, but you know, sometimes it's good that we don't have that hope given to us immediately. Because in America, we are so used to having that hope immediately. Oh, Jesus loves you, so it's okay. Continue in your sin of, of lust and pornography, of greed. Go ahead and continue it because Jesus still loves you. 
And sometimes it's good that we simmer. That's what Jesus did in Matthew chapter 5. He didn't give them the gospel. He said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those you know, who do this. Blessed are those who do that. And everybody reads that as a gospel sermon. But read the whole thing. He wasn't a gospel sermon. It was sending them to hell. He said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. How would that make you feel? Is that a good guy? And by the way, that's how he left them. He let them simmer on that so that when they left, they're thinking, we're doomed. There's no hope. I know me. And I know God. And I'm scared. So that, what's that? He, he left them hanging. And so later, they were so thirsty for the gospel that they're like, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. You see, who shall not fear you? We, we better fear God. We better understand that those commandments are serious. And it is not a small thing to be breaking the commandments of God. It isn't, oh, Jesus loves you. He's forgiven you. That's what he came to do, so go ahead, keep living your life of sin. It's all right, you're forgiven. No, 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 no. Don't deceive yourself. I know that we do not earn our salvation. We cannot be good enough to get into heaven. I don't care how good we are at keeping the commandments of God. You will still fail, and that one failure is enough to send you to hell. No wonder you ought to fear God. But you see, it's because we love Him that we want to give our lives to Him. And that's why we obey, because we love Him. Not to try and be good enough to get to heaven. You can't. You'd fail. But because you want to be good enough to be called, you know, to be, uh, to be worthy of being called a saint, to be called His child. You know, I remember as a kid, I wanted to make my dad proud. I wanted to, you know, if I made a three-pointer or something like that, I always would kind of just glance over to see if my parents were watching. Because I wanted to make them proud. I wanted to do good to make them proud. And you know something? I think that's what... That's my motivation. I want to make God proud. I want to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Not, well, you made it by the skin of your teeth. Good thing that I, you know, love you. I want to hear, well done. So, this song of Moses, this is what we sang tonight. I just want to let you... Now let these words sink in a little bit in context. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great, great, and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, Lord, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord? Deliverance. That's what it brings. Let's look at this same, these same verses. Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. 
can almost break this up into four categories. Ways, works, um, why or worth, I should say, and worship. How great are your ways? Just and true are your ways. What, what, what's the difference between these things? Well, that's how God does things. That's how he does things. How did he do it? He sent his son. He gave us the Ten Commandments. He gave us his law, his decrees. He gave us all of that. He gave us his word. That's how he does things. His works, that's what he does. How he did it was there had to be a sacrifice of his son, that there had to be an atonement. The work that he did was by sending his son to actually do the work. The works that I do are the works of my father, he says. Right? His worth. His worth, you might say, is why he does it or who he is. The very characteristic, the image of him. Remember, the beast has an image. The image is, is that characteristic that is wrapped up to describe and, and picture the essence of who the beast is. Likewise, God also has an image. And we are that image bearer. If someone looks at you and they see that you're rude, that you don't discipline your children, that you um, do nothing but watch TV and have boats and expensive cars and houses and watches and electronics and you name it, whatever it is, but they don't see you investing in the kingdom of God. Maybe they, they look at you and they, they see that you know, you're selfish and greedy, that you're not a submissive wife or you're not a loving husband. That's an image. You are an image bearer. You represent the worth of God. Is God worthy of your praise? If you're not praising Him, what image are you bearing if you're not worshiping Him? If you're in pornography, what image are you bearing? It's not God's image. You see, His worth is seen in us. That's why we obey, because we are image bearers. I'm not obeying to earn my salvation. I obey the commandments of God to the best of my ability through the Holy Spirit simply because I'm an image bearer, and that is God's worth. He is worth my obedience. He is worth my love. And last, worship. Worship is what he receives because he is worthy. And those are the things that we're seeing great and marvelous, Lord. Because who you are. Let's look at this worship a little bit more here as well. For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. What's he being worshipped for? His judgments. 
Isn't that interesting? It's easy for us to say, oh, you're so worthy, you came and died on the cross for my sins. But remember, we're talking about deliverance. And let me tell you, when we are delivered from this flesh, from this world, we are going to worship Him because of His judgments. That's why this is great and marvelous. Romans 14, 11 and 12 says this, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will confess to God, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. This is echoing the truths found in the song of Moses from Exodus when it said, Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. It doesn't matter who it is. Who shall not fear God? Every knee. Biden, his dementia will be gone. And he's going to know that he is bowing before the creator and king of the universe and that he is under judgment of that God. Every tongue is going to confess to God, I am wrong. There will be no excuse. Boy, we're full of excuses today. We're just like Saul. Saul, you know, well, well, I only kept the good one because we were going to sacrifice them. You know, I, I only am doing this because, because of this reason. We're king of justification. Not here. There will be none. Because he is awesome in glory. We also read here in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, speaking of Yeshua, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Yeshua every knee should bow. Yeshua. Oh, I, just, I, I just had that picture of, of Ron Elberg here, that, our friend there in, in Israel, when he said, Yeshua, oh, the name, the name. When it rolled off his lips, just what it, what it did to him. In context here, remember Yeshua, what does Yeshua mean? Yah is God, Yeshua is salvation, God saves. This whole chapter 15 is about salvation, deliverance. Yeshua is what this is all about. No wonder that is a name that is above every name, that at the name of Yeshua, every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth, under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus, Yeshua HaMashiach, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Can you see these echoing Revelation 15 here? All nations are going to come and worship. Why? Because his judgments have been manifested. They are just. They are true. He is worthy. And I have nothing to say. I am undone in your presence. Verse 5, after these things, I looked and behold the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And out of the temple came the seven angels, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen. 
and having their chests girded with golden bands. John sees the temple here opened in heaven. Remember on earth, it was just a picture of what's in heaven. There is a temple in heaven. The lamb is the temple. I don't understand how all that's going to work, but the doors are open. As we saw in chapter 11, verse 19, it's going to be very important to, to understand this because this is key in our timing. 11 verse 19, connected with the words here, after these things. What things is he talking about? I think he's talking about the judgments that had been manifested on the earth. What we're going to be, you know, what we saw in the trumpets and all of those uh, the, the seals being opened. Because in chapter 11, verse 19, we got to the seventh trumpet. The seventh trumpet ushers in the bowls that we're about to read. We've just taken kind of a commercial break to see some other details about what was going on. But chapter 11 is dealing with, hey, the seventh trumpet's about to blow. And when the seventh trumpet blew, the kingdom of the world became the kingdom of God. The time to reward his saints had come. You're not going to be under the judgments manifested on the world anymore. None of that. And so after these things, what do we see? Before the bowls are poured out, the doors of the tabernacle are opened up. Partly to let these angels come out because they're going to have the bowls that are going to be poured out on the earth, this judgment. Well, we see after chapter 11, verse 19, as I said, in this commercial break period, we see the evil trinity in chapters 12 and 13. The beast, the beast out of the sea, the beast out of the earth, you know, the dragon. And then the 144,000 are seen in heaven in chapter 14. And we also see in chapter 14 the harvest of the earth. Okay, sounds like what's supposed to happen pretty much right around this time. And so after those things, I think, is kind of after the judgment and harvest of the seventh trumpet. And once that happens, now the judgment of God is going to take place as these angels come to pour out and destroy the earth completely, to destroy the ungodly. So... One more time, just to kind of make that clear, because I think it's so important for the timing. After the seventh trumpet blows in chapter 11, what you see, if you look back there in chapter 11, verse 19, you're going to see that the temple in heaven would be opened. And then what happens in chapter 11? There's thunder, lightning, and an earthquake. So in chapter 11, seventh trumpet, Heaven is opened, thunder, lightning, earthquake. And guess what you're about to see here? Heaven opened, thunder, lightning, earthquakes. Same exact thing is going to take place. So, um, I, I think we're dealing with the same time period connecting here again, connecting those dots. The bowl judgments that we're going to read here are going to be 
right after the opening of this temple here in verse 5. It will then continue through chapter 16. And you're going to see the great thundering in verses 18 and 19. Um, then even in chapters 17 and 18, we're still seeing Satan's kingdom being judged at that time as well. There is an image of the law being brought forth because the people on earth are lawbreakers. It says that, I looked and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. The Ten Commandments have been often called the tablets of the testimony. That image of the law, what's coming out of this temple that's being opened is the law of God. What is, how is God going to judge you? By the law of God. One of two things, and I don't know, whether things are going to be changed in heaven or in some way this is God and in a way that we can't understand. I think it's just two, two non-earthy uh, for us to understand. It's just an alternate reality to where we, we just can't wrap our minds around that. But it says specifically of the testimony, so is that, yeah. I don't know, it almost seems like a, Heavenly history museum kind of a thing. I don't know. Yeah, I know. It, we see the tree of life is in heaven. Well, it's going to be, you know, we, we see all of these things, but the tree of life is a picture of Jesus. The law is the very essence of who he is. Um, so I tend to think that there's going to be something like that up there, that you will see. There are the commandments, but I don't know. But I think that there's going to be a literal, but ultimately, Yeshua is that. The Lamb is the temple. How that is, I just, you know, is it Peter or Ephesians that says that we are being made, we are pillars, you know, being made as pillars in the temple of our God? Um, how are you a pillar? You know, is this a literal aspect? I, I, I don't know. So I don't have a good answer for you. These angels are wearing white linen, gold sashes around their chests. This is also important. The priests normally are decked out in glory, colors and all of that. But these only have white linen and a gold sash. There's one day a year when the priests only wear a white linen and gold sash. The Day of Atonement. This is just one more thing to point us to that what's going on here is what we are to practice and rehearse year after year after year when we get in the fall festivals. The Day of Atonement is what's going on here. That wrath is being poured out. And uh, you might want to go back and listen to that if you don't remember what we talked about on the Day of Atonement. But... That is a clear picture of what's happening here, I think. 
The clean linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. That's what Revelation 19 is going to tell us uh, in verse 8. The word temple here, it is not the, the word for the inner sanctuary, or I'm sorry, not the word for like a, uh, just a temple like you'd see on earth. It is the specific word for the inner sanctuary, the most holy place. So on earth, where were the Ten Commandments kept? in the Ark of the Covenant, in the most holy place. So that's important as well. As on the Day of Atonement, these priests wearing the same thing, these angels, these holy ones, are the ones that are bringing out the judgment. You recall that as we go through the fall festivals, this is kind of like, Books are opened, and then it's your last chance, and then the books are closed, and it's too late once the books are closed. seems that we have reached that point. Like I said, go back and listen to some of those messages in context of chapter 15 here. It's definitely a connection. Hebrews 9.24 says here that you know we also see why Christ went to this tabernacle. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. So there is a true one. It's just that in our flesh and in this physical world, this is as close as you can come to copying that. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Okay, where did he go? He entered heaven itself. And it kind of alludes to the fact that he went into the most holy place. And now, that is what we're seeing opened up here in Revelation 15. Verse 7, Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. I can't help but think again of Romans, when it says that we are to love our enemies. If your enemy is hungry, give him something to eat. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And in so doing, you are heaping burning coals upon his head. And you go, what does that mean? Is that just symbolic of, hey, you know, you love your enemy, that's going to really tick him off? I don't think so. I think it's saying this. If you love your enemies and your enemies don't receive the love of God, there is literally going to be burning coals that will be poured out on their head. That's what's going on here. Verse 8, the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. So, I love this. The temple is opened, as I said, so that these angels can pour the wrath of God out. They'd come and do the job that they had been prepared to do. As well, no one can enter the temple until all of these judgments are done. Keep in mind that the temple will be God himself in heaven. How, again, I don't understand how that is, but that's what Revelation 21-22 tells us. 
But just like on earth, the priests, when they would make these sacrifices, the blood was caught in a bowl. And then that blood of judgment was gone and it was taken to the altar and poured out at the base of the altar. And in some cases then sprinkled on the people. Poured out, you might say, on the people. And without Yeshua, that would bring judgment. But with Yeshua, it is made white. Our, our clothes are made white by the blood of the Lamb. Now, here the angels have bowls that are going to be used to judge sin. That may be... Well, I don't think maybe. I think that's what the bowls of blood in the temple were a picture of. Judgment. Because judgment was placed on Yeshua. We often think of Jesus. Jesus is the answer. But you've got to realize that Jesus' death was not like this glorious thing. It was the judgment of sin on him. It's an evil thing. It's what you deserved. And his blood has made you clean. Just like on earth. The fact that we can't enter the temple yet suggests that the wedding banquet of the Lamb has also not yet taken place. We're not going to see that until chapter 19 because we've got to go through the bold judgments and see what's happening in chapter 16, 17, and 18. Um, it might even suggest that no one can be saved once the temple is closed as well. Kind of like what the Day of Atonement and the Jewish symbolism was, that when the, when the doors were closed, that's it. Fits the, the Jewish understanding of that. Like on earth, the temple was filled with smoke. When the priests went in, they had to burn this incense, and it says in Scripture that it was there to shield the priest from the glory of God. We read in 2 Chronicles 5, verse 6, all the way chapter, through chapter 6, verse 1, you can read about the temple being filled with smoke when God's presence was there. Here in heaven, it is filled with smoke until the judgment comes back. And until that smoke leaves, you're not able to enter into the temple. So let me show you the exact same thing. I've kind of gone through this slow because I want you to see the exact same thing here as we look at Second Chronicles. That the priests cannot go into the sanctuary just as the angels don't go in until it's done. So let's look here. On earth as is in heaven. Second Chronicles 5.5 5. Then they brought up the ark, the tabernacle of meeting. The tabernacle of testimony, in a sense. The, the Ark of the Covenant. And all the holy furnishings that were in the tabernacle, the priests and the Levites brought them up. Then the priests brought in the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place into the inner sanctuary of the temple. In Revelation 15, we are seeing the Ark of the Testimony in the most holy place. When the priests came out of the most holy place... Going on to verse 12, And the Levites who were the singers 
Remember, there were harps and all of the things going on in Revelation 15 here too. Clothed in white linen, just like the angels had white linen on. Having cymbals, stringed instruments, and harps like the angels had. And with them, 120 priests sounded with trumpets. This seems to be at the time of the seventh trumpet. Indeed, it came to pass when the trumpeteers and singers were as one to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. Just like in Revelation 15, they're giving praise, the song of Moses. Praise the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endures forever. That the house, the house of the Lord, was filled with a cloud, so that the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. What is this smoke filling the temple in Revelation 15? The glory of God. The Shekinah or Shekinah glory of God. That is the very thing that led them through the wilderness. A cloud by day, fire by night. That is what's filling this temple. The exact thing in 2 Chronicles 5. What they're doing... Little did they know, Revelation hadn't even been written yet. This is Revelation 15. By the way, when is this happening here in Chronicles? The seventh month, the time of atonement. The very time it seems to be Revelation 15 is going to take place. That's why these festivals aren't just for curiosity and, oh, it's just a nice symbol. Guys, we do this because this means something. When we celebrate the Day of Atonement, Sukkot, all of these things today, it's not so that you can be Jewish. I know the world thinks you're weird, but hey, it's biblical. And it's helping you understand what the Bible is talking about. Okay? So, all of these things are the, the same. In the most holy place, there's the cloud or smoke, white linen, the singers praising and thanking, just like they are in the Song of Moses. You know, God's presence in the most holy place. You can't enter in until the cloud leaves. All of it is the same. And one other thing. Moses goes up on Mount Sinai. And what does he see? He sees what looks like a sea of glass, mountain covered in smoke. The law going forth. See, it's not just here in Chronicles, but it was in Exodus. Moses, the Holy One, going up on the mountain. The mountain now is because of the presence of God. The glory of God is filled with smoke. The Ten Commandments are in His presence, the very presence of it. It's the same imagery. Now, although Ten Commandments is a good phrase in English, the term used in the Bible it's Aseret Hadevarim. That's what we call the Ten Commandments. It literally translates as the Ten Words or the Ten Utterances. And that is what we see uttered on Mount Sinai. Is the Aseret Hadevarim. So next week we are going to talk about Moses and the Messiah Connections. Because I think that Moses' life is a picture of what you're seeing here in Revelation 15 as well. And it's too much to get into in one just short setting. So 
but because Moses can only take the, the Israelites so far. It's kind of like the law. The law can only take you so far. Moses was not allowed to go into the promised land. So who did bring them into the promised land? Joshua. Let me say that again. Yahshua. Sound familiar? Yahshua, Yahshua. Joshua is the exact same name as Jesus, Yahshua. So Moses, the law, doesn't, it couldn't bring them into the promised land on its own. I think that's one reason he was not allowed to enter into the promised land that way, that Yahshua had to bring them in. Because if that's all you have is the Ten Commandments, you will not enter the promised land because you can't keep them. You need Yahshua to lead you in. Here we see the law goes forth to bring judgment. The law is coming out of the temple. It's not bringing the salvation. It's bringing the judgment. And that's what you see in chapter 16, 17, and 18. Then in chapter 19, Yahshua comes and we're going to celebrate a wedding banquet with him. The law is not bad, but the law cannot save. Yeshua is what saves. And that's what we're seeing here, symbolized, pictured, whatever it is, in chapter 15. So, like I said, next week we're going to dive into that Moses connection a little bit more. So, let's close in prayer. Oh, Lord, Yeshua. Hamashiach, the Messiah, the, the anointed one. We need you and we love you. Lord, you have told us that the kingdom of God is at hand. I pray that you allow us to live victoriously, righteously, boldly. That we would not shrink back from death, shrink back from the evils of this world, but that we would be on the offense not just the defense, that as you told your disciples that the gates of hell will not prevail against the truth that you are the Son of God, you are the Holy One, you are Mashiach, that just as gates were used as a defense, that means we're on the offense. Lord, empower us, strengthen us that we not shrink back and, and just get scared and worried and complain and whine about the evils of this world, but rather we give you glory, honor, and praise because victory has been won. Let us live a life worthy of that calling in victory, in joy, and in strength of your word. Give us an understanding and discernment, Father, when we live in a world and a culture that has, has twisted and reshaped your word. Give us discernment to know what it says. Let your spirit speak to us that we might know truth. And let that truth cause us to be image bearers for you. That your glory would shine 
through us, that the world would look at us and they would see, wow, that is what God looks like. That is what holiness is. Lord, we cannot do this on our own. We need you. And we know that through Christ we can do all things. So thank you for sending us your son. Thank you for sending us the counselor. May we live as if we believe that. In Yeshua's name, amen.